My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Pratt Library. And on behalf of the Board of Directors, the Board of Trustees, and our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, I welcome you to the Pratt Library for this evening's Writers Live event. This evening we have Ted Rawl, who is a syndicated, syndicated columnist and political cartoonist. He is also the winner of numerous awards and honors, including the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award for Outstanding Coverage of the Problems of the Disadvantaged Twice, and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Rawl is a frequent guest on the Fox News, Al Jazeera, and Russia Today TV. This evening, he's going to talk about his new book, The Book of Obama, From Hope and Change to the Age of Revolt. It's my pleasure to welcome Ted Rawl. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. And uh, I, this is a real treat to see this amazing library. Uh, it's just, uh, uh, I'm from New York, and we have a beautiful library there, a bunch of them. But it's an amazing place. I'm sure everyone says that. But, uh, you know, it's like a temple. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, even just this room alone, it's a privilege to speak here and to uh, be invited. So thanks uh, to the Pratt Library for uh, bringing me out, and um, and thanks to you guys for showing up. So um, I am. A, you may know me as a prim primarily as a cartoonist, or you may primarily know me as a writer. Uh, this book is just came out two weeks ago, uh, and it's a um, collection of both. It's probably about eighty percent uh, prose, and the rest of it is cartoons. And it sort of picks up where my last book left off, called The Anti-American Manifesto. Uh, but we're just going to, I just want to focus on this book and then show some cartoons and throw it out for discussion. Um, one of my favorite cartoonists uh, and friends is a guy named Aaron Magruder. Uh, he uh, was the creator of the comic strip and TV show The Boondocks. And when he does a public appearance, he just walks up to the mic and says, questions. And uh, it's really the best format uh, because you're not just listening to some boring guy talk. You're, you know, you get into, you get into it. So uh, we have a, a small crowd here, but I would really, if, really appreciate questions. And uh, it's okay for them to be challenging or uh, disagreeing or whatever. Um, it, you're not going to probably offend me, so um, I don't offend easily. So if you know, feel free. And uh, if you think of anything you want to say or whatever, just please uh, keep it in mind and uh, we'll get to your questions uh, sooner rather than later. And I really look forward to them. That's my favorite part. Um, so uh, the, the Book of Obama came about um, sort of, uh, you could say, in, the, in December of 2008. Uh, that was during the transition period between the election and the Obama inauguration. And at that time, you will no doubt recall, it was the, uh, we were a few months into the biggest economic crisis faced by the United States since the Great Depression. We were losing about 600,000 jobs a month. The uh, several major banks had already failed. Uh, major insurance companies had had to have been bailed out by the Bush, outgoing Bush administration. Uh, there was the beginning of the TARP the uh, temporary asset relief 
uh, bailout that uh, started under Bush, continued under Obama. And the um, economy was absolutely the number one issue facing the United States at that time and continues to be today. And uh, with great expectation, many of us uh, who had voted for the president, and I was one of them, waited the outcome of the uh, who he would announce to be his on his cabinet, particularly his economic team. And uh, I kind of thought, and conventional wisdom thought, that uh, we'd be seeing a lot of the old Clinton people, uh, because uh, when you come in as a, the first Democrat since the last Democrat, you tend to bring in a bunch of the people from the last administration. And uh, so we were expecting to see people like Robert Reich, the former labor secretary, uh, and then some new faces like the New York Times columnist and economist Paul Krugman, um, who had correctly predicted the bursting of the housing bubble that led to the economic crisis, uh, come on board. And shortly before the transition was announced, um, the, inter uh, the, the, the new economic team, I called Paul Krugman and asked him if, uh, if he was packing for Washington. And he laughed and said, no, they haven't, uh, you know, they never call, they never write. And uh, so I thought, well, you must be talking to them on background. You must, the Obama team must be reaching out. You know, after all, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist. He was right about everything when everyone else was wrong. He said, no, no, they haven't reached out to me, not even on background. And I was astonished. And uh, that's, that moment was the origin of this book. Because uh, when, the, when the announcement came out uh, of the economic team and the incoming uh, cabinet appointments, not only were there none of the uh, people that you'd kind of want to see uh, to deal with this kind of crisis on the, uh, on the, t uh, on the list, uh, there were a lot of uh, people from the, uh, very, from the very organizations that had caused the problems in the first place, people from Goldman Sachs, people like Lawrence Summers and uh, Timothy Geithner, uh, and, you know, no Paul Krugmans, no, in fact, no liberals whatsoever, which is something you would want to see in an dem incoming Democratic administration in the middle of a huge economic meltdown. So at that moment, I realized that we were, you know, I mean, a president is very unlikely to uh, have policies that are wildly differentiated from those of his cabinet. Um, the 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 person he's you're going to surround yourself by people who are going to forge the policy and if you go back to 2000 and think of george w bush you know before he became president his reputation was as a centrist moderate republican who as governor of texas reached across the aisle and worked with democrats and liberals um, but then he appointed a bunch of hardline right wingers like dick cheney and uh, those people really pushed him to the right. And he, he was a right-wing president as a result of the team that surrounded him. I mean, you know, you're not going to be a moderate Republican surrounded by right-wing advisors. I mean, you know, these are, you appointed them for a reason and you're going to follow their advice or you're going to fire them and get new advisors, which Bush didn't do, and neither did Obama. I mean, uh, there's been a remarkably high retention rate for the Obama cabinet as there was for Bush. So. Uh, at the time, I thought, you know, um, when there were no liberals coming in, I thought this administration is setting itself up as a major disappointment because it's not going to be able or willing, and really who knows which, to deal with the gravity of the problem. I mean, to put this in proper perspective, depending on how you measure, between 10 and 14 million people lost their jobs 
between 2007 and the time that Obama took office. Um, we were losing 600,000 jobs per month. Now, to put this into perspective, uh, at the current rate of job creation, which is about 60,000 per month, it would take 42 years to put all those people back to work. And if we calculated the unemployment rate the way that, the, that it used to be calculated uh, before the 1980s, the current unemployment rate would be 23%. It's the, uh, you can look at a website called Shadow Government Statistics, which can explain this in greater detail. And it's a really important, interesting blog. And uh, they also have the real inflation rate and all sorts of things worth looking at. But that's the, the our unemployment rate is literally as high as it was at the height of the Great Depression in 1934. So the misery is different. You know, I mean, back then there were uh, people, uh, guys selling apples on the streets. There were bread lines. Now, uh, homelessness and poverty is more hidden than it used to be. You have people living three or four, uh, you know, at a time, doubling, tripling, quadrupling up in people's homes, staying on their sofas, uh, a lot of family members lending each other money that they know they're never going to get paid back. But the misery is still there. The unemployment is huge, and nobody even talks about underemployment. All the people who, uh, you know, are doing jobs that uh, really they are... Uh, you know, not they're qualified to do something better that would pay better, but they can't get something better. Or it pay they have a job that suits them, but they're not working as many hours as they would like to. They're only working part time. So we have a huge crisis. And uh, you know, when you have a crisis like this, uh, and it's the number one problem facing the country, um, you're and you're unable or unwilling to do anything about it, you're going to end up with a very uh, divide divided angry, desperate, polarized, ideological citizenry. And so what we have is a, an economic system that was unable to, and a political system, I should say, that's unable to respond to these crises. Now, in the Great Depression, under FDR, FDR was able to respond to these problems uh, with the New Deal, um, the WPA, and other programs that employed 9 million people on the federal payroll. Today, if we employed nine, the equivalent of that based on population increase, you'd be looking at 22 million people directly working for the federal government. Uh, that would pretty much take care of the current economic crisis. And that's what, frankly, uh, people like Paul Krugman think that Obama should have done. Now, um, the big question among progressives is, is Obama conservative secretly, or are the Republicans just stopping him from doing what he wants to do? And the truth is we will never know what's in Barack Obama's heart. And in a sense, it doesn't really much matter. What matters is the policies. Um, I don't care if a bad person has, if a bad person has good policies, I will vote for them over a good person who has bad policies. So um, the, the, so this book basically seeks to, uh, it has basically it operates on two levels. On the one level, it operates as a historical thesis. And the thesis is, goes roughly as follows, um, that, he, that Obama is our Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev was the last leader of the Soviet Union. And uh, he was, without a doubt, the most fundamentally decent, liberal, progressive, intelligent, well-intentioned well man who ever ran the Soviet Union. And the, Soviet, the system collapsed underneath him. And why did that happen? Well, a lot of historians think that that's ironic, that a reformer, a liberal, would, would, would see the, the floor pulled out from under him. 
But actually, I don't think it's ironic at all. I think that what happens is that when you have a brute like Stalin or Gorb or um, Khrushchev or Brezhnev in charge, or you have someone who's not maybe the best leader you could have, like George W. Bush in charge, you think, well, if we had a better president, we'd be okay. Every, and it's a, it's a logical thing to do. But then you get a better president. I mean, Obama, clearly huge improvement over Obama, over Bush, as a hu- uh, you know, in terms of personality, in terms of intelligence, in terms of decency. And what happens is that not that much has changed. You know, I mean, the, the, the only attempt to, to uh, save the economy was to save the banks, not to save people. There was not enough help, for, help to help people who were losing their homes to foreclosure. There was certainly not enough help for the unemployed. A lot of people have run out of unemployment benefits. The benefits were too small. Students are graduating from college. They can't afford to pay their student loans because they can't find work. And there's just not enough help. Um, the, the, uh, this, so, so you have this... Um, you have this situation where uh, the pre- you know the president just you you it's it's very frustrating for people. They they say well things are much better, but they're not right. So and if you look on the foreign policy front, um, things are really a lot like they were under Bush. In some ways, they're worse. I mean, we're still at war in Afghanistan and Iraq. The we're going to be at war in Afghanistan at least for another ten years, um, according to a new agreement that we just signed. Uh, we will even though they talk about withdrawals, it's kind of smoke and mirrors. I mean, they're just calling troops by different things. Now they're trainers, but they're still there and they're still expanding. Um, Certainly in terms of civil liberties, you know, the government reserves, continues to reserve the right to read your email, listen to your phone calls, and even to assassinate you with a presidential signature, which is something that no president prior to Obama has ever asserted. So why why is this thing, why is the system still bad? And um, well, the answer is, it's the system that's the problem. Just in the same way that we saw that Mikhail Gorbachev, um, that life for the Soviet people was still bad under Gorbachev, life under for Americans is still bad under Obama. And it's not because of Obama, it's because of the system that he presides over. It's not the personality. It doesn't matter whether uh, really this fall, whether Obama or Romney wins, there will be slight differences. But overall, the general system the capitalist system, the corporations in charge, the 1% running everything over the 99%, that stuff is going to go on. And um, so that's the sort of the thesis of this book. The other, the subtitle of the book is How We Went From Hope and Change to the Age of Revolt. Now, the Age of Revolt is really a twofold Age of Revolt. We have, um, in 2009, the Tea Party movement was first on the right. Uh, they started out as constitutional purists, uh, libertarian types, um, people who wanted to get back to the original intent of the framers, and uh, that movement was very quickly co-opted by cor- by corporate interests, uh, the Koch brothers, uh, giant uh, giant uh, uh, giant uh, packs that were funding them, and that system that that movement is uh, most people who are in the Tea Party today are either unaware of that or are are sort of being used. And or are the users. Um, in 2011, on the left, the Occupy Wall Street movement began. 
Uh, it really originated in the summer in Wisconsin with the big uh, union protests, the occupation of the state capitol in Madison, and then evolved into something bigger in New York and in Washington, Occupy DC, Occupy New York, uh, Occupy Wall Street, all over the country. There were literally over 2,000 occupations, even in small towns. And the movement continues today, although it's been, um, you know, it's, 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 it's metastasized into something different uh, after a lot of police repression. So, you know, what happened? Uh, well, on the left and on the right, a lot of people, not everybody, not even most people, but a lot of people decided that they that politics was no longer something that they just did on election day. It was no longer something where, you know, we think of, pol if you look at the news, they say, and now the political beat. And what does that entail? It's the horse race between the Democratic and the Republican parties. But that's not what politics really is. And people started to realize that in uh, 2009, uh, when Obama came in and things weren't changing fast enough. What politics really is, is people every single day talking to each other at work, in coffee shops, at bars, in, at the unemployment office, on jury duty, at the library, everywhere, and, 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 and trying to take control of their own lives. That's what was so exciting about the Tea Party at the beginning and the Occupy movements, is that they were about people who for the first time uh, in a clumsy, um, difficult, tortured kind of way, uh, we're able to see, you know, like me, just me, like a, a cartoonist or a, a cab driver or, uh, you know, uh, or, or, or anyone, a teacher, anyone can just decide, you know, well, how, that I, my voice counts. Maybe I have as much, we all have to work together to try to build something new and think of there's, if there's a new way to run our economy, a new way to fight our wars or not fight our wars, a new way to have relations uh, with other countries and so on. And, um, and so uh, I give Obama credit for being the reluctant midwife of the um, age of revolt. He didn't, like Gorbachev, Gorbachev set out to save the Soviet Union. He didn't want communism to go away. He was a product of the, so of the socialist system. Um, and Obama, similarly, is a, you know, he's a product of the American system. I mean, he went, I went to Columbia University and I, you know, I remember him. Uh, we went at the same, he was two years older than me. I remember him at the time. Uh, he went to Harvard um, and he, you know, he was, uh, he's had a very fast track, um, you know, politically. And he's, uh, so he's, he's not trying to, uh, he's not interested in, in radical reforms like, say, you know, curtailing capitalism. He is trying to save the system. And as it is, and, um, you know, what that means and how he's going to do it, we're not really sure, but uh, that's, that's his intent. And, Gorb and, and the intent and the result is, un he doesn't want this, but the result is that he's getting people very, very angry because they're feeling disappointed. And I kind of, and I, what I argue is that it's a good thing. It's a great thing that we're angry. Uh, we should be angry. And it's not just at Obama. It has nothing to do with him. We should be angry at the system. Um, we should be angry at a system that thinks that uh, if you're unemployed, that's your problem. And if you're sick, too bad. And if, you're, um, you know, if, if your kid is sick, it's not my problem. Um, we need to be angry at that system because we don't live in a poor country. We live in a rich country. And there's no excuse whatsoever for us treating each other this way. And we don't want to. Most of us don't want to. If we put it up to a vote, we wouldn't live this way. So 
we're, we're, we have a system that doesn't serve us, that doesn't work for us, that's not fair, that's not decent, that's cruel, and, um, and it's mean. It's, it's, it's mean. So um, it's good that we're finally, for the first time, starting to have a discussion outside of, you know, should I vote for the Democrats or should I vote for the Republicans? It's important to, to think, you know, there's, we, we don't even have to have this system. We don't have to have 50 states. We don't have to have this constitution. We don't have to have a president and a Congress. We can do anything we want. We should, you know, I mean, it's been a long time. You know, we've had, this country's been around over 200 years. Most governments change a lot more often than that. Um, this one had a lot of problems from the outset, you know, a lot of people who love the Constitution and always talk about how, you know, oh, this is the perfect document. Like, really? Perfect document? Like, you know, it, it, it enshrined slavery from the outset. It's uh, hardly perfect. It was, it was flawed. I mean, property rights, including those of people, was the number one most important thing in the U.S. Constitution. And today, there was a really fascinating article uh, about a month ago in the New York Times that I recommend that you seek out uh, on if you if you have access online that talked about how new countries like South Sudan that are looking to form new constitutions no longer look to the United States Constitution as a boilerplate or as a template for um, a new constitution because it doesn't it's kind of out of date it doesn't really have a lot of rights that are considered standard in much of the world. Um, you know, in many countries, uh, the Constitution guarantees, obviously, uh, equal, right, um, equal rights for women, which the United States uh, Constitution does not. A lot of, country, a lot of uh, countries' constitutions guarantee the right to a living wage. So even if you're unemployed, uh, the government has to pay you enough that you can pay your basic necessities. A lot of, a lot of them have your basic right to health care in the Constitution. We don't have that. So you know, we could start afresh, and it's a, con it's a discussion we need to have. So that's the uh, serious and boring part of uh, tonight's cock. And um, so I wanted to show some uh, cartoons that I've done recently, most of which um, appeared after this book went to bed. Um, this book basically is current through, um, I think, basically the end of April when it became uh, when Romney locked up the locked up the nomination, but uh, I put you know obviously I do cartoons every week and uh, I put in some uh, cartoons here that I thought you might enjoy and that kind of give you a sense of my range of opinions about Obama and about the current state of affairs. So without further ado, um, <laughs> sorry, let's go back. Um, I always like to put that quote up there. <laughs> Also, because he's so beautiful. Um, okay, so this is maybe my, this is probably the ultimate raw cartoon about Obama, which is that I would vote for the Kenyan-born, Alinsky-loving, radical socialist caricature of Obama. You know, the way that the right wing says he's like this radical socialist. I'm like, oh God, that would be awesome. I would be totally into that. Uh, sadly, it's just not true. Um, I'm gonna skip this one. Okay, this one's about um, it's six panels and it's about the cycle that it's not just about Obama, but it's kind of about the cycle that um, you, that of that we sort of fool ourselves with. Shortly after a new president takes office, he can't do anything. He has to save his political capital just into the first term. He can't do anything. The other party controls Congress during the re-election campaign. He can't do anything. He needs to get re-elected. Then he'll do something at the beginning of the second term. 
He can't do anything. A lame duck has no political capital. Remember that right now. At the end of the second term, he can't do anything. He has to get his party's nominee elected to succeed him. Shortly after the new president takes office, he can't do anything. He has to save his political capital. And so it goes forever and ever and ever until we die. This is uh, sort of the, um, the, the, the media spin that we always hear. Romney needs to move right to shore up the GOP base. Obama needs to move right to get swing voters. What about left-wing voters? They need to move right to catch up to Obama. I mean, have you ever in your life heard the media say it's important for the candidate to move to the left? Ever. I mean, I'm 48 years old. I've never heard that. Maybe that happened a long time ago, but I've never heard that. Deep beneath the Earth's crust is the Super Romney Pack attack bunker. People are pissed off at Obama. Great. About what? He didn't help the jobless or the foreclosure victims. He didn't punish the banksters. Healthcare, no public option. But we agree with all that. So what do they come up with? Because I mean, that really, I mean, it's really, I have a, it's very difficult for me to see a plausible right-wing reason to hate Obama on the policies. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not the policies. It's the color of his skin because he's pretty conservative. Um, this was when the story came out about Romney um, gay bashing that guy, that his uh, classmate in high school, in prep school. Romney was a bully in high school. So we have Obama in the Situation Room. Campaign gold. Let's discuss it after the sanctions briefings on Iran, Burma, North Korea, Cuba, Zimbabwe. I mean, you know, the point here being that the United States is the ultimate bully. And uh, Romney is not really... Um, that big a deal compared to, uh, you know, by the way, I just heard, read this really interesting article about how, um, according to the UN Charter, uh, no member nation of the UN is allowed to th even threaten war against another country. So like when the president says, not just this president, every president says the military option is on the table, that's a violation of the UN Charter. Um, it's a very serious one, actually. Someone was, there were people executed at Nuremberg for violating that, that principle. Um, had this idea of Obama after he retires. Of course, this won't be true because he'll be a rich guy, but the not-so-distant future. Very impressive resume, Mr. Obama, but no one's hiring, especially not former laid-off middle managers in their 50s. Maybe if the government passes some stimulus. I mean, of course, obviously. He's, he'll be doing the speeches like Clinton, I guarantee you. U.S. troops will stay in Afghanistan at least until 2024, so uh, someday this will all be yours. Um, well, I'm going to skip this one because it's not really related. Americans, we rule the world. I hope the president I didn't vote for arms the rebels we know nothing about against the regime we also know nothing about in Syria, which I can't find on a map until I forget about it. I mean, it's always something. Um, I just read that 86% of Americans can't find Afghanistan on a map. Um, in 2001, I, was, uh, I, I went to cover the war in Afghanistan, the invasion of Afghanistan for the Village Voice in New York. And I rode in the back of a truck, an old Soviet pickup truck with this uh, 
guy named Peter who worked, he's a British reporter, who got killed actually uh, two weeks later. Um, and, he, and he said, you know, I think you Americans need a three-city rule for invasions. And I was like, what's the three-city rule? He goes, if you can't, if the average citizen cannot identify three cities in a country, you're not allowed to invade it. And I was like, well, we couldn't even invade Canada then. It's like, not fair. Question. I lost my job. What is Obama doing about unemployment? Answer. Obama killed Osama bin Laden. Question. How does that help me find a job? Answer. Now you don't have to compete with Osama bin Laden for a job. Question. But he's only one guy. Answer. Obama is using drones to kill lots of other people, which means fewer applicants for that great job you want. But that's in other countries. Funny you should mention that. Uh, this, this, I did this cartoon shortly after a British newspaper reported that there were 82 drone sites in the United States that are being um, set up for militarization. There's now drones in production for domestic police departments, uh, including the Washington Capitol Police, that will have uh, little drones that with little machine guns on them. That's the future. It's the near future. We're talking about like a couple of years. Finally, Obama created 20 whole jobs, but they're in Colombia. This was the uh, Secret Service scandal, if you'll recall. <laughs> it's always fun to draw floozies. So, um, you know, I kind of regret that I didn't get the lace stockings right, but uh, next time I'll do it better. There's always a next time. Who's there? It's God come to the light. It's time. Weird. I'm ready. I've lived a full life. I've seen and done and loved. I've tried to do good. You have been good. And now your heart is going to be implanted into Dick Cheney. <laughs> be right there. Nice. That's what I would do. It's like He can't have it. Andy Warhol said that in the future, everyone would be famous for 15 minutes. But Andy Warhol lived in a time of mass culture. Everyone watched the same three TV channels, watched the same Oscar-winning movies, and read the same books from the Book of the Month Club. So everybody, for instance, no matter who you were, knew who the Beatles were. You know, you might not like them, but you knew who they were. Pop culture has fragmented. We read millions of blogs, we listen to obscure bands, and we stream movies that are never released in theaters. Even big stars are unknown to most people. So for this cartoon, I looked up who the number one singer in the country was this particular week, and it was Carrie Underwood, who I actually had never heard of, and if she had broken into my home, I could not identify her to the police. If she mugged me, I couldn't say who she was, and uh, I've never heard her song, I Ain't in Chakota, anymore, and if I... For a billion dollars, I couldn't tell you anything about her. And, and I, I have thousands of records. I love music. I, I'm very current. I guess I thought I was current. Now, in the future, everyone is famous to 15 people. So it's like my sister is my favorite ebook novellaist. I mean, you know, people are famous without actually being famous, like little, little tiny subgroups, like, you know, this person's a knitting star or something. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, 
I do try to be an equal opportunity offender, and I do most of my cartoons about whoever the president is because he's the president. But Mitt Romney is a wonderful candidate, and uh, I do as many as I can about him too. So I have coined him the Mittbot. The Mittbot. It relates to your concerns. Don't you just hate it when your portfolio turns out to be insufficiently diversified? It solves your problems. Looks like someone needs a brief, brief clasping of arms about his or her thorax. It learns from its mistakes. Note to self, stop referring to Terran babies as work drones of my future corporate dystopia. It even emotes like a human. Error code minus 44. I'm expecting him to break. This was after he did, he, I mean, he's really made some amazingly uh, weird conehead uh, remarks. Um, and of course, the best one ever was the Michigan. I assume everyone's heard the Michigan remarks. Uh, he was, this is his home state, right? I, you know, I love Michigan. I love cars. I'm like, everyone loves cars, Mitt. And it's like, it's like not just in Michigan. And he's like, I love the, 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 I love the grass. It's the right shade of green. The trees, the trees are the right height. <laughs> it's like, on my home planet, these vegetables remind me of home. It's just, he's the most awkward in his skin politician I have ever seen in my life. It's unbelievable that this guy is the, a, a major party nominee. I mean, he makes John McCain look normal. I'm going to skip this one. Oh, well, anyone see, um, what was that movie? Uh, Charlie Wilson's War. Anyone see that? Tom Hanks. Um, well, anyway, that's about how America cozied up to the Mujahideen under Ronald Reagan and funded the Afghan resistance fighters against the Soviets, who then eventually metastasized and morphed into the Al-Qaeda, which attacked us on 9-11. So now Russia and Iran are, so there's a famous bathtub scene with Charlie, Congressman Charlie Wilson in the 80s hanging out with like bimbos. And uh, so I kind of, this is what this is about. Russia and Iran are supporting Bashir al-Assad. The U.S. and its Arab client states are arming Islamist militias. It's the 80s all over again. We like freedom. You like freedom. We have so much in common. We won't forget you. We don't even know who these, the, free, the free Syrian army is at all, we're, and we're sending them massive amounts of money and weapons. We have no idea. Meanwhile, people lose their homes, and they don't get any help at all. We know who they are. Okay, so what if the United States had two political parties, the KKK and the Nazis? Us cartoonists were very subtle people. You have to vote. The Nazis will make things even worse. No, the Klanocrats take us liberals for granted. Both parties are evil. I refuse to support either one. There's a big difference. The KKK hasn't killed nearly as many people as the Nazi Ablicans. Also, the Klan is slightly less evil on gays and abortion rights. Let them be slightly less evil without my support. The Imperial Wizard promises a, li a liberal second term. Local Clavern, here I come. It's the two-party trap, as they call it. You know, I mean, the lesser of two evils, the idea that we have to choose between two extremely unsavory and unappetizing dishes. Like, you know, which would you rather have for dinner tonight, pee or poo? I take none of the above. This was um, my idea of uh, Obama and his advisors. You know, he ran on hope and change back in 2008. So now he's looking, trying to, this is when they were trying to work up the new campaign slogan. So I was like, could be worse. 
prevented a depression, four more years. It's like Obama's like, yeah, we're gonna need more coffee. Um, they ended up coming up with forward. Well, I mean, I certainly hope we're going forward. I'd hate to, you know, I mean, what's the alternative? It'll be 2011 next year? I mean, it's like not so great. Two cops reporting to the scene, um, natural causes. It only counts as suicide if your unemployment benefits haven't run out yet. This is a reference to the fact that if you run out of unemployment benefits, you are no longer counted as unemployed. 50 million babies have been aborted since 1973, homeless guy says. Lucky stiffs, they'd all be unemployed today. Which is true. I mean, if you think about it, we don't have enough jobs. I mean, we certainly wouldn't have enough jobs for those, for those aborted babies, so we probably should have aborted more of them. I'm, I'm a sarcastic, I'm being sarcastic here. I hope people understand that. Okay, so I'm fascinated by the Donald Trump and the birthers because, um, and I decided, I, I turned it over for months trying to figure out exactly what bothered me about the birther conspiracy theory. And finally, I came up with this cartoon, and I think it, it does a pretty good job. Okay, 1961, a boy is born, not in Hawaii, but in Kenya, unleashed upon an unsuspecting world, Barack Hussein Obama. A shadowy web of conspirators hatches a masterful plot. This boy will be president of the United States. Our puppet. This was like che, che Guevara meets uh, Hillary Clinton there. Countless lies must be told. Bribes are paid. Imagine the soundtrack to The Omen as I say this. Documents are forged. No one must ever know. Those who suspect the truth are silenced. Shut your yap, Trump, or these hair plug pics go online. <laughs> Finally, in 2009, the imposter rises to ultimate power, which he uses to continue everything pretty much the way it's always been. Lamest sinister scheme ever. Ha! Do nothing. Corporate centrism will destroy the world. I mean, really, it's like, what is the point of this conspiracy? I mean, he's not much different than Bush. I mean, it's like you'd certainly, if you, if you were going to plant a president uh, who was not born here and do all these lies, it would be towards some purpose. But uh, I'm going to skip this one, Trayvon Martin cartoon. I'm just skipping it because it's kind of like, it's, uh, well, I can, I'll, I'll say it. All right, so I was trying to draw the parallel between um, drone strikes in Afghanistan and this, and uh, this, because with drone strikes, we racially profile the victims. You know, we have someone who sits in a uh, it, it, behind a computer screen in in uh, you know at CIA headquarters in Virginia and look at Langley, and they look through and they literally identify someone simply by like their looks or the color of their turban. That's the, if you wear a black long-tailed turban in eastern Afghanistan, they will identify you as a Taliban, although that's not at all true that all Taliban guys wear those, or for that matter, that everyone who has them are Talibs. There's kind of not much relationship between those two things. It's just kind of bull, but they do it anyway. Um, so I wanted to, when Trayvon Martin was racially profiled and killed, I thought, well, we do the same thing in Afghanistan. So here's that cartoon. The killing of an unarmed teenager in Florida, Afghanistan, is prompting angry demands for the arrest of the vigilante who shot him. Not only did the cops not arrest the killer, they're on his side. A self-appointed neighborhood watchman noticed Trayvon Martin because of his clothes, appearance, and location, then targeted him. Looks like a terrorist. Take him out. Claiming the right to stand his ground against a perceived theoretical threat, 
The attacker acts without fear of arrest. Drone strike. Once again, an innocent young man falls race victim to racist profilers who kill with impunity. This cartoon kind of fell flat. I think nobody got it, really. Um, but, um, you know, sometimes when you try to draw these analogies, uh, they just don't work. And it's hard to know why, but to me, this still worked. This one, however, really shines. People see either really love or hate, so I put it in here. Passive Resistance Comics. Good news. This was about the Occupy movement. Good news. I stole a cache of grenades and guns from the guards' armory. This is uh, during, in a death camp during World War II. This is a peaceful movement, Pachersky. If we use violence, we'll become just like them. Uh, but they're heavily armed. No, first we chant, hey, hey, ho, ho, the systemic mechanized mass murder of European Jewry has got to go. <laughs> hmm, now we escalate. Petitions, Facebook event pages, lobby the Reichstag, blog. Look, we've got grenades. Let's blast these Nazi bastards to, no, dude, be the change you wish to see. Occupy our doomed lice-infested barracks. Oh, I guess that's not a popular cartoon here. And um, yeah, so one more negative quote by people who know who Al anyone who knows who Al Andrew Sullivan is, who pretends to be a liberal now, um, but he's not really. Anyway, so uh, that is it for the uh, cartoon presentation. And uh, I hope that there are some questions, comments, insults, complaints. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Okay. You began to talk about challenging. I do have something to say that's challenging. Good. You're a library. You're a factory library. And every other library in Maryland. Um, you carry, as far as I know, almost all of the things that you published that nobody has touched the Anti American Manifesto. And I don't know why. I, I would hope that the, um, some of the representatives in the library will have something to say about it, although I admit it's putting them on the spot. But I did have a, several conversations with somebody from the Baltimore County Library, which is in the suburbs. And they denied up and down that it had anything to do with censorship. Um, but they wouldn't really say why. But it just strikes me as a huge coincidence that they carry all your other books and they won't touch this one. And obviously, what stands out like a first thumb is that the title is very provocative. And it looks to me like self censorship. And it makes me very angry and I've been very frustrated about it. Uh, and if you feel like it, maybe you can comment. If you have any experience across the country of how, how libraries have been in terms of, of picking up and carrying this book, and whether you feel that there's a contrast and it needs a, an explanation or other thoughts you may have about this issue. Well, um, the Anti-American Manifesto was a radical book. It came out in 2010. It called for the overthrow of the government, or more accurately, it called for the discussion to create the space to think about a new system of government outside of the one that we currently have. And uh, it was meant as a, um, you know, it is, it, it is an extreme book. And, uh, and, and of course, originally it was going to be called the Post-American Manifesto. And then in the middle of the night, I realized that uh, I woke up and I realized they're going to call it anti-American. So let's just call it the anti-American Manifesto because it's the awesomest name ever. But I realized that it would cause problems. And of course, the content also is obviously controversial. Um, and so 
In terms of the libraries, look, I, I have no evidence whatsoever about how many libraries carry the, you know, st uh, you know, uh, stock the book and which don't. I know that um, there are, uh, you know, it was that book, that title had trouble getting into stores. It had trouble getting into, um, certainly no one reviewed it. I mean, it was like you couldn't get a magazine or a, or a newspaper to touch it. And what's funny is it sold really well. Um, it's completely word of mouth. Uh, it sold for, it was the top seller by my publisher for three consecutive um, seasons, even though they had moved on to other titles. Um, you know, it's great. I helped, uh, you know, to let me renovate my deck and my house. So I'm psyched about the book, ironically. Um, and, uh, but it was a, um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, you can't, when you write a book that calls for the overthrow of the government, you can't really be surprised when people, when, uh, you know, government uh, agencies like libraries are maybe not psyched about it. But they also, I think librarians also are just like uh, anyone else. They have to kind of uh, weigh a lot of factors. They want to weigh like, uh, you know, they have a limited budget. They can't buy every book. They can't buy every book. They have to figure out, you know, who wants what. And, you know, generally, librarians have been extremely supportive of my work, most notably um, my uh, To Afghanistan and Back, which was the first, not only the first book of any type about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, but uh, it was also very anti the war in Afghanistan in 2002 at a time when that Democrats supported that war. Um, remember, Barack Obama ran uh, saying that he was going to expand the war in Afghanistan as late as 2008. So um, that war was very popular with the American public, and uh, the librarians um, really backed it up and uh, and and stocked it and put and gave it a, gave it an award. And so, you know, it's a mixed bag. Um, I think if people want to see a book on in their library, they should any book they should do what you do. They should talk to their librarian and they should insist and they should ask. And uh, you know, it's um, it's uh, you know it's, you know I don't I, I don't I try not to second guess. The decisions too much, but I mean, I uh, I can't say that when I when I wrote when I published that book that I expected anything different. I was pleasantly surprised that there was a huge demand for it just by people who happened to walk into bookstores and see it and were like, "Oh my God, I need this because no one else is talking about this," and you know that's kind of the nature of these things. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I I would say to start with that. Um, my trajectory of dissolution of, uh, was similar to yours, uh, particularly with Larry Summers, the appointment of Larry Summers, who was not just anti-women at Harvard, but was um, anti-union, anti-labor, anti-student, and had been a hedgehog at Eisner. So I thought it was really, to me, an enlightening moment. And I didn't even watch the inauguration because of that picture. So uh, that, trajectory for me really similar. But my question is, if I had to write a book and pick a title for it, it would be the reverse of yours, because it would say, well, from hope and change, I was thinking about how you were speaking, to the age of maybe disempowerment or depowerment, because um, where you see um, hope, and like the Occupy movement, I actually see that people to me in the last four years have been even further disempowered. And that the Occupy movement had a 
data. I'm going to only reinforce that or further highlights that because it's been um, to me very much crushed by big money, $10 million donations to the Romney and other people. So my question to you is how do you get to the age of default of, of revolt? Because for me, I I see disempowerment, not empowerment. Your, your title actually is optimistic. And I um, have to say that I'm much more pessimistic than I ever thought I could be. So my question to you is, how do you get to the optimism? I think everyone who's not an optimist when they wake up in the morning kills themselves. So the fact that you're here proves you're not as as pessimistic as you think. Um, I think that uh, if you're, um, I, 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 want, I was wondering if I could ask you to elaborate though on something you said. You think this is a, a period of, you know, you think people are more disenfranchised or disemp disempowered. How so? Disempowered. How, how do you feel they're more disempowered? To me, the word power isn't used too much. But how are we? How are people more disempowered now than they were before? I mean, I, I, the reason I'm asking that is because I mean, the age of the last big age of protest in the United States kind of ended in the early '70s after Kent State, and um, and pretty much there's the, you know pr there's been of course protests, um, but nothing really major, nothing broad based, nothing national until Tea Party and Occupy. So for 30 years, 40 years, nothing. And so how are we, I mean, to me, that's why I'm hopeful. I see for the first time people are taking to the streets again, which is where politics belong. And, um, I, pardon? For now. They'll be, they'll be back. Don't worry, this is going to be a hot summer. And it's not, it's just beginning. Tomorrow's the first day. So uh, you will, I, I think you're going to see protests at the, at the political conventions. Uh, there's lots of stuff planned. And I think maybe we may look back and see that Occupy turned out to be something like the free speech movement at Berkeley, sort of a prequel to something bigger. But it's just the beginning. I mean, once people get a taste of real power, um, and it's only a taste. I mean, you're right. They're, Occupy is a shadow. Not, they haven't accomplished anything. Um, the police have pushed them out. I mean, I'm about to write a whole critique of what went wrong with Occupy, which basically boils down to you're going to occupy public space. Okay, what are you going to do when the police come? You can't occupy public space and be a nonviolent movement, or nothing will happen because the police will come. They will throw you out and you'll be gone, and that'll be the end of it. And that's exactly what happened, except in Oakland, where people resisted and they made some noise. But um, so I think that there was, a, you know, every system, every protest movement contains the seeds of its self-destruction. And uh, But, you know, so in terms of the book title, I am an optimist. I absolutely think that, um, you know, we were asleep for years. And, um, you know, my, I'm 48 years old. Uh, I have not seen a serious protest movement in this country since I was 10, and uh, and now it's uh, it's starting. It's and it's not much. It's not exciting, but it's better than nothing. In the 80s, we had nothing. In the 90s, we had nothing. In the 2000s, we had nothing. So, yeah, it's 
crappy, but it's but it's something. So you know, if you hadn't eaten in, in a week, you'd love McDonald's. So just saying. I mean, maybe if you haven't eaten for a few hours, you'd love McDonald's. But um, and in terms of the the uh, book title, I just want to I sort of have a backstory, which was the publisher screwed up the title. It was supposed to originally be called The Story of Obama after the famous, notorious, erotic novel. And when they put it in the catalog, they screwed up the title. And they're like, the, and I was like, are you serious? Really? And so now I have to call it, I hate the title. So anyway, um, yes, sir, the hat. Mm. I wonder whether you think that perhaps a scarier, perhaps an American, uh, let's be American, Noam Chomsky, uh, just before 2010, noticing you know, the formulation of the Tea Party. Of course, uh, it was a sort of uh, right wing way. Unfortunately, it didn't take care of it. <laughs> it was a right wing way. Uh, as uh, was suspected, and before this happened, Noam Chomsky, who probably been a member as far back as the Depression, said this is actually scary in the Depression, the Depression had trade union movement, whatever you think of it, and communist and socialist, it was after holding you know, real movements and so on, and that prevented perhaps the worst thing that could happen on the ground, such as what happened in Germany. Uh, what he's Yeah, no, I, I like I like the comparison. Well, there's there, it's not over till it's over, right? I mean, you know, if you're about to be executed, you, the governor could still call. You know, I mean, the um, there's we're not out yet, but it doesn't look good. 
And, um, you know, I mean, I, I think about the, 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 how the political center of the United States has moved to the right consistently for decades. I mean, you know, honestly, if it were 1960, Obama would be far too far to the right to fit into the mainstream Republican Party. Um, he would, I mean, seriously, Richard Nixon, if he'd heard stuff like, oh, yeah, you know, we just invade countries and we don't ask Congress for permission. You know, oh, we, use, we send drones, we assassinate American citizens just on our signature. He'd be like, no way, that's impossible. Um, you know, it's like if you, and Barry Goldwater, if he were around today, well, I mean, he couldn't have, he couldn't, he, could, he would have run to the left of, of John Edwards in the 08 primaries because here was a guy who was in favor of gay marriage back in the 60s. Right, so I mean, he was a libertarian. He was like, you know, kind of in many, on social issues, very far to the left. I mean, so the, everything just keeps moving to the right so radically. You know, I, I when I was at Columbia, I took uh, one of my favorite classes uh, was the uh, fascism uh, with Robert O. Paxton, who uh, whose uh, book, The Anatomy of Fascism, is just absolutely essential reading. Um, and it was his masterwork. He spent his entire life preparing for it. It's a slim volume. And basically what he seeks to do, and I think he succeeds perfectly, is to define what fascism is and how it comes about and what you need to have it happen. And, you know, when I took his seminar, he was notorious. He was a very brutal grader, and he rarely gave any A's or A minuses or B pluses. And, um, and I got one of his rare A's by, um, there was only one assignment in the class, write an essay about which country is most likely to go fascist and how it would happen, and I chose the United States. And um, he, he's like, yeah, nobody ever has the balls to go for the U.S., but it's the U.S., and this was back in the 80s. Um, it's like, clearly, we have a lot of the elements here, you know? I mean, we have the, we have the, the cult of militarism. We have this, you know, the, one of the things that fascist countries do is they, they, they're always attacking everyone else, but they, they claim to be victims. We're under attack. We're being besieged. Like, you know, we have to defend ourselves against, I'm like, against who? You know, I mean, what? Pakistanis aren't attacking us. The Afghans aren't attacking us. The Iraqis aren't attacking us. The Yemenis aren't attacking us. We're atta the Iranians aren't attacking us, but we have to defend ourselves. That's a fascist thing. Um, the and it, and so I've all you know I mean I do in the um, so I'm very influenced by that. And um, in fact, I kind of reference Paxton and the sort of the the Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale kind of scenario of like the far Christian right coming to power in the United States. And, uh, you know, in this country, if, you know, it wouldn't be Jews going to camps, it would be African-Americans and other minorities and gays. And um, the, and I, you know, I think that the big danger in the U.S. is you have a huge right wing. They're very well organized. They have mainstream political power. They have um, fringe power, militias. They're, they're well armed. They've been waiting for this stuff for years. They feel besieged. They are... Um, uh, and you know, and they're poised really to take over in a in sort of a 1991-style post-Soviet style collapse scenario, where the system just sort of instead of having a revolution, the system just comes to a thud. You know, the economy tanks, everyone's out of work, the dollar's not worth anything. We're all on a barter system. It's the United States essentially becomes a semi-failed state like Afghanistan in the 80s or Somalia today. And, um, you know, and then, then what steps into the void, right? I mean, well, you know, it's going to be like in the 90s in Russia, it was gangsters and drug dealers who took over the country. And they're still in charge. And they're killing journalists like they're going out of style. And um, it's, um, and I think you'd see, you'd see something closer to that here, where you'd have, you know, uh, right-wing thugs, criminals, 
militia types, uh, racists, all sorts. I mean, this, these are huge, num pop you know, huge numbers of the population. And you know, like you like you talked about, uh, you know, Professor Chomsky referring the, to the 30s, how there's you know there was a, there was a socialist movement, there was a communist movement. We have no left whatsoever. There is literally, you know, we, I laugh every time, you know, CNN or Fox or, or MSNBC talk about the left. There is no left in the United States. I don't mean like there's a lame left. I mean like there is no left. We have progressives. We have liberals. They work within the Democratic Party. Most of Occupy is liberals. They're not radicals. Um, the, there are some revolutionaries. There are some anarchists. But, very, but they're not organized. And um, so there's no way for the, you know, the, the left is not going to come to power without an organization. Or it can't even counter right-wing power without an organization. And perhaps the most frustrating and most deadly enemy to our salvation is liberals. Because liberals in, within the Democratic Party are preventing the emergence of a real left. They're blocking that conversation. You know, back in the 50s or the 40s or the 30s, you know, certainly Democrats and liberals didn't agree with communists, but they let them live. They didn't crush them. They didn't, like, erase them from the conversation. They were allowed to participate in public discussions. That's no longer true. So, you know, you read left-wing magazines like, say, The Progressive or The Nation, you know, um, these Mother Jones, there's no left-wing voices in there. There's no one in there who wants to get rid of the government. There's no one in there who wants communism. There's no one in there who wants socialism. There's no left-wing libertarians in there. There's no, there's no anarchists. Um, they don't get any voices. They don't get to draw cartoons. They don't write, get to write columns. They don't get to do anything at all. And that's, you know, and, and they're really, the irony is that liberals are really not doing themselves any favors this way because, you know, liberals need a left to help define them and to fight the right because the right does have the hard right. There's a hard right big time, but there's no hard left. And the right understands this, you know, like Republican part, like Ann Coulter is a, a Nazi basically, but she is... Um, uh, you know, she gets support from mainstream Republican organizations. She gets to speak at CPAC, um, and she gets paid and, you know, kind of bribed by having these conservative think tanks buy, like, thousands of her books, and they give them away to their members. So, but that money just goes to her, right? It's a way of supporting her. So the, the mainstream Republicans are supporting their radical right, um, and... You know, the liberals are not doing that for their radical left. They're killing their radical left, not literally, but they're just smothering them and depriving them of oxygen intellectually. So, yeah, I mean, I'm scared. And, like, when I wrote the Anti-American Manifesto, the reason I wrote it was because I was concerned exactly about the scenario that you, that you discuss, which is collapse followed by right-wing takeover. And, uh, and I was saying we need to create the space for a left-wing alternative to that, to say that, look, after collapse, because this thing, this thing is of ours, this U.S. system is going to collapse. It will or be overthrown. It's inevitable. It's, I don't know if it happens next week or if in 10 years or in 50 years, but it will historically happen because nothing lasts forever. That's just history, whether it's the Roman Empire or anything else. So when it happens, you want there to be, you know, a, an alternative to Nazi, to, to neo-fascism. And we don't have it. So that's the biggest political danger that we face in this country, um, without a doubt. I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a great question. Yes, in the back. One more in the back. Okay. What I don't understand, though, is the 
flailing, right? I mean, it's kind of like, well, we have two crap, two crappy choices, and, um, you know, so we, we give one crappy choice and their chance, and then they suck. We come and check four years later, and we're like, okay, get rid of those crappy guys. Let's just let the other crappy guys have a chance. And like you said, it's really, I mean, the thing that's, uh, I mean, okay, when you say there's no there's no new ideas coming to the fore, right? I mean, we're we have lots of brilliant people in this country, right? We have 320 million people. We all know a bunch of brilliant people, and and none of them probably have a chance of running for political office. Um, you know, I, I'm an, I'm a white male, healthy. Ivy League educated guy, and I cannot run for political office because I don't have access to the kind of money that I would need. So you have to be in the one percent of one percent to even consider like running for, say, the state house. And um, so it's you know it's so basically most of us, all the best talents are locked out. And then let's say you were a remarkable person, and you 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 were lucked out. You're from a rich family, but you have the right ideas, and somehow you managed to make it. Well. You're, in, you're sitting there in that Congress for 453 other guys who basically are all going to vote against you and hate your good ideas. So you're crushed. And they're all being paid off by, by big money, by corporate interests, right? And you're not. And then you don't get any chairmanships and you can't be on any committees. And so you have no power. And you end up like Dennis Kucinich, marginalized and looking stupid and, uh, and wasting your time and sitting through a bunch of boring meetings. So... There's nothing to, yeah, that's why I say the system is ultimately unreformable. You know, I mean, it can't even really save itself. You know, Karl Marx and, and, and Friedrich Engels wrote in 1848 that, that in the final crisis of capitalism, you would see something that looks exactly like this, a time when two things would happen. Uh, you'd see, well, you'd see three things would happen. First, you'd have, a, you'd have a crisis of overproduction. What does that mean? It means that you've got... Um, the system has is uh, able to produce a lot of products that no one can afford to buy because uh, salaries have come too low. So um, too many people are too few people have all the money. Too uh, most people don't have enough. 
So you have more stuff that's being created than can be, and that just drives prices down, which precipitates a depression. That's one. Number two is big ideas, young people, smart young people can't, they have no path to advancement. They don't get into the political system. They can't, no, the, the political system doesn't want new ideas. You know, if you're a smart, energetic person with cool new ideas, they keep you out. Um, you know, look at what happened in the 2008 primary, Democratic primary. It's just one example. But, you know, there were three major candidates, John Edwards, Hillary Clinton, and, and Barack Obama. John Edwards was the furthest to the left, right? What did they do? They got rid of him first, right? He had to go first. So how did they get rid of him? The media wouldn't give him any oxygen. There were studies that were shown that he never got any coverage. They wouldn't, you know, he didn't get interviewed. He wasn't invited onto shows um, unless he could buy advertising, but he couldn't get the kind of free exposure that you, you know, Obama and Clinton were getting. Then Clinton ran slightly to the left of Obama. They got rid of her, <laughs> and so we end up with the most conservative choice. That's how the system works. And then, you know, getting back to uh, Marx and Engels, the third and final thing that you need that you see in a, in a uh, in a big final crisis of capitalism is a the clash between the liberal elites and the conservative elites finally tips to the favor of the conservative elites. So. You know, in terms like look at right now, you have the big discussion among the G20 and the leaders of the of the world's biggest economies about austerity versus stimulus. In other words, creating more jobs, pumping more money into the economy, or cutting everyone's budgets, closing everyone's libraries, closing everyone's schools. Right? That argument has been among the the rich have always argued amongst each other. They're not on the same side. The liberal rich people, you know, under FDR, for instance, who was called a traitor to his class. Um, was, uh, you know, li those liberal elites, they, they, they won the argument in the 30s, which was, if we don't give people jobs, if we don't do something to help people, they're going to have a revolution, and they will come, and they will overthrow us, and they will kill us. That we don't want. So we have to give them social programs. Then, but then on the right, you have, like, people like you know, Angela Merkel, um, you know, the, the, pro the, the hard right... You know, doc, you know, cut the budget, austerity, cut everything back. Like everybody's spending too much. Why are you spending so much? We have to learn to live within our means. That discussion has, um, you know, in recent years, has tipped completely over to those people. So yeah, there are still liberal elites who want, like Warren Buffett. You know, uh, there's uh, Ben Bernanke, the head of the Federal Reserve Bank. He wants big stimulus but he can't get the approval. The conservative corporate elites are in charge. They're running everything. And the liberal elites can't get a word in edgewise. That's the final crisis of capitalism. So, you know, I mean, so what happens? What do the voters do? They're, they're, they're flailing between two bad choices because they're only given two bad choices. Um, the, you know, it's, it's inevitable, right? I mean, it's kind of like, well, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And so, you know, people, I'll answer the last question, which hasn't been asked, but it's sort of floating in the room, which is what should you do this November? The answer, it doesn't matter. Like vote for Obama, vote for Romney, don't vote at all. Just don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, voting isn't the issue. It's like what is what matters. Don't spend the psychic energy thinking about it. Like the whole point is to stop thinking of voting as important. Start thinking it of something that you can do or not do, like you know anything you want. Like but. Real politics is about organizing on the grassroots level and uh, building an organization from the ground up. That's real politics. 
And that's not someone that anybody can teach you how to do. You have to do that yourselves. And we all have to do that together and uh, in our communities, in our local communities, and nationally and globally. But uh, we have to do what the, what, the, what the Egyptians did in Tahrir Square. We have to do what the Tunisians did. And, uh, you know, we have, to, we, have to, we have to rise up. So um, thanks, everybody, for uh, coming. I really, it was awesome. And uh, if you'd like to buy a book, um, I am happy to sign it outside. Thank you all.